course, CCI was a horrible place. It was a horrible place. It was like a dungeon. And it was cold. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it, it it wasn't open. So you, you go in there, you go locked up, or you stay locked up and come back out or go in, and that's it. You don't you don't do nothing in there. Uh did not like going in there because it was, like you said, it was a gruesome looking place back down in those holes. It was a long time ago. I believe so much truth will never be found. The old CCI was torn down. It was described as a horrible place and I can only imagine. Gaskins once said he was even tired himself. It must have been so much to keep up and live with. I do believe if he could have escaped even up to the end, he would have. Before Gaskins was moved to his final location in 1990 to death row at the Edisto building at the Broad River Road Correctional Institution, he lived a pretty rough life. He suffered in a basement cell isolated from everyone and everything, a true dungeon. His cell was 7 by 12 foot with a barred door. Outside the barred door was another door made of solid steel so Pee-wee couldn't see the walkway. Above the still door was a light and camera that stayed on him 24 hours a day. Twice per week, Gaskins was forced to strip and shower, and other than that, he was totally isolated from the world. As for food, Gaskins was taking cold leftovers. Three mornings a week, he was brought cornflakes with water instead of milk. If they didn't electrocute him soon, he would probably starve to death. It was later determined he was beaten and abused by two black guards on a regular basis. They blamed his bruises on him falling in the shower. In winter, his cell was so cold the water would freeze in the toilet, and in the summer, it was so hot you could hardly breathe. Pee-wee was now 49 years old. He remained in isolation for six years, until 1988 when his basement unit at CCI was closed down and unfit for human occupation. 
At that point, Gaskins was moved to death row. Two years later, in 1990, he was moved again to a new facility on Broad River Road. There he was allowed to have visitors for two hours. They could sit together in the day room and drink Cokes and chat. His daughter Shirley visited frequently and would bring the grandkids to see him. He loved them very much and would hold them tight on his lap throughout their visits. The day room also had phones. He could use them every night, and that's where he had numerous conversations with his author. Even though he didn't have long until his execution, his life was starting to somewhat look up in this new building. Pee-wee was never bitter about facing death. During his final months on death row, Gaskins became a confirmed Christian and begged God's forgiveness for the terrible sins he committed. Who knows if he was sincere? We can only take his word for it. In fact, just a week prior to his execution, Pee-wee wrote a letter to Holly Gatling, a former reporter for the Florence Morning News, who he became close friends with. He told her he sent a copy also to a friend and prospect, who promised to read it in church the following Sunday. He confessed in his letter, quote, I am so sorry for every sinful thing I've done or said to other people. I beg God's forgiveness. I beg forgiveness of the family and friends of persons I have hurt. The solicitor says I will burn in hell. His problem is he doesn't understand how broad and deep is my Lord and Savior's blessings. Quote. Only hours before his execution, Gaskins tried to commit suicide by slashing his wrist with a razor blade. He was not very successful. He received 20 stitches and was watched like a hawk for the next few hours. On the morning of September 6, 1991, at 1 a.m., Pee-wee Gaskins walked with confidence into the execution chamber, looking happy as if he was on a Sunday afternoon stroll. In order to avoid involuntary bodily discharges, when the switch was thrown, the guards already inserted cotton swabs into his rectum and wound a very tight rubber band around his penis. Without any hesitation or assistance, he quietly sat down in the electric chair and gave a deep sigh. He then smiled and waved to several lawmen seated in the witness section. He remembered the fellows from way back, and he wanted to make sure they had front row seats. The only family present was his son, 20-year-old Donald Lee Gaskins. Donald said, quote, I hope to live a normal life once my father has paid for his crimes. I hate it's going to happen, but maybe after it happens I can live a normal life. He might have done life in the pen, but his family has also done life out here. Besides, I think he's ready for it all to be over. I know we're ready, but I still love him. Pee Wee sat very still as a guard put leather cinches around his waist and across his lap to prevent him from rising up. Then they strapped his wrists and ankles to the chair and taped a wet electrode to his calf. Next came two guards who tilted his head back and strapped it in place while the third guard adjusted his metal headpiece and placed it so that the wet sponge was over the main electrode 
and it was just in the right position to send the first charge of electricity straight to the center of his brain. Once all of the hooking up was completed, just before the black hood was placed over his head, he looked at his very attractive attorney, Kelly Branham, who sat with the other witnesses. He gave her a big wink and a thumbs-up sign and said, It's all right. It's all right. But she was weeping, too hard to respond. Finally shaking her head, she stood and turned her back to the proceedings. She would later say that Pee-wee had always been a perfect gentleman in her presence and a very likable person. Certainly not her idea of a killer. Once everything was ready, the guard in charge nodded silently to the warden to hit the switch. In fact, there were three switches, and there were three officials waiting. Each would hit a switch so that no one would know who actually executed Pee-wee Gaskins. The three switches were hit. Then came a five-second surge of 5,000 volts, followed by an eight-second surge of 1,000 volts, all sent straight to his brain. In the first three seconds, his brain was fried, his eyeballs exploded, and the blood in his arteries began to boil. His skull was charred where the surge went in, and his leg charred where the surge came out. Ten minutes later, after all the witnesses had departed, a physician came forward with the stethoscope to listen to his heart. Then he gave a sign to the warden that condemned the man was indeed dead. He was 58 years old. I was a full-time police officer in Newberry County the night that Pooh Gaskins was executed. And it came over the radio, I think it's about one or two, somewhere right in that time frame. And they said Pee Wee Gaskins has been executed. And we dedicate this song to him. And they played here in a quarter called Someone Who Cares. They then transported his body to the morgue. Oddly enough, it was the coroner's duty to determine the cause of death, as though it could have been anything other than electrocution. The following day, prison officials released his body to his daughter, Shirley, who immediately had it cremated. The next day, Shirley walked out alone into the woods behind her trailer at Roper's Crossroads and scattered his ashes into the winds. It was truly a quiet ending for one of America's most prolific serial killers. Now here is Brianna Stallings from our interview about the funeral home. Which funeral home was it again? It was Dunbar Funeral Home in Columbia, South Carolina. They were uh, a family-owned uh, chain of funeral homes based in the South Carolina area, and they often got... Uh, they carried a lot of clout in the South Carolina community. They often got uh, politicians, wealthy people, stuff like that. So it, it wasn't unusual for me to hear that they had received somebody notorious. About a decade after my parking lot spanking, my father had moved on to bigger things. He'd long since been let go from Thompson's, and which was another funeral home and managed to work at several other funeral homes in the tri-state area before winding up as an employee of the Dunbar family. The Dunbars own several mortuaries in Columbia, but it's the Gervais Street location in the heart of the city that still looms large in my mind. A Queen Anne Revival mansion 
Built in 1892 as a home for textile titan W.B. Smith Whaley, the Gervais Street Dunbars was outfitted with a sprawling public entrance, a turret, and a bay window, and a multitude of barnacle-like awnings clinging to its shingled sides. Just behind the street-friendly facade, there was a four-car garage with its own on-site gas pump and a carriage house converted into the body preparation area. An elevated walkway about the length of two limousines connected the two structures. The crematorium was further out back. Daddy worked long, daddy worked weekend-long shifts there. That meant he had to sleep on site in quarters above the preparation room. Mama and I would go visit him after our weekend errands. We were never allowed in the preparation room. Not once. Daddy said it was against OSHA regulations. Mama didn't want to be in there anyway. She respected what my dad did for a living, but felt that respect was best maintained from a distance without her having to be up to her eyeballs in it with him. I, on the other hand, took the denial of access as a challenge. I would tiptoe through the waiting lounge to peek around the door, hoping to see a corpse with a trocar in its carotid artery, its blood being drained into an industrial sink. We were allowed into the administrative office, though. Sometimes, if Daddy had a few moments to spare, he'd escort Mama and I into the front house to visit with the receptionist. A painting of the funeral home at night by local artist Blue Sky greeted those who walked in through the employee entrance. It was like a caricature of a haunted house. Gray sky, dense with clouds, midnight blue shadows, the epitome of comical menace. I stifled a laugh every time we walked by. The bifocal receptionist was there in the office, seated behind a dull gray metal desk. On the afternoon, I met Peewee. Although it was the early 90s, she sported an awe-inspiring bouffant. I entered the room with a small, guarded smile I had in those days, careful not to reveal my gapped front teeth. Still, I was looking forward to asking after her, so much so that I didn't notice a small cardboard box stowed underneath a chair. I walked into it, stumbled and blushed, then steadied myself against her desk. Just... A six-by-six-by-five box. Nothing big. Better be careful where you walk in there, sweetheart, Daddy said over my shoulder. I could hear him smirking. That there's Pee-wee Gaskins you're kicking. My father often, figuratively, brought work home with him. Because of his profession, death was just as common a topic of dinner conversation as my grades in school or the customers my mother helped at her banking job. Gaskin's name was one that Daddy had shared over supper. Yet despite his own morbid curiosity, my father was gracious enough to spare his daughter the gory details of Gaskin's actions. At the time, all I knew was that Pee-wee was a monster because he'd killed people, with a name like that of someone I used to watch on Saturday morning TV. I also knew that he would be killed by old Sparky on my birthday, a fact I'd announced with feigned annoyance to a horrified social studies teacher a week before his death. He had always been small for his size, but on this, the one and only occasion I met him, Pee-wee weighed just under five pounds. That's 
130 pounds of son, husband, father, and killer, reduced by the crematorium to 130 cubic inches of ash, or nine cups. Thank you so much for tuning in to Season 1 Murder Mondays with Nicole Simmons on Pee Wee Gaskins. Stay tuned for more to come. I would like to thank everyone who helped and supported me through this adventure. To everyone who let me interview them and to friends and family who traveled with me and helped me gather facts to support my research. All shows are in memory of the victims. May you all rest in peace.